Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. And I'm tremendously excited today to be sitting here right now with Trevor Sylvester. Trevor is the founder of Cognitive Hypnotherapy and the training director of the Quest Institute. He's trained well over 800 cognitive hypnotherapists and has worked with literally thousands of clients, helping them to let go of anything that limits them or reduces their quality of life. Amongst other things, he was the editor of the Hypnotherapy Journal of the National Council of Hypnotherapy for nine years and received their Researcher of the Year Award for his groundbreaking book, Word Weaving, The Science of Suggestion. And whilst I could talk for much longer about his various accolades, I'm keen to hear from the man himself. T tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got started. Yeah, sure. Well, if, um, if I start with the beginning, I, I was a police officer. I was a police officer for 18 years. Um, for the last seven, I was at Hendon Training School as a police instructor. I mm -hmm. kind of wandered in there almost by accident. You know, a series of happy and unhappy circumstances drove me there. And they were at a particular point where they were really investing in, in training staff. So we ended up getting taught psychology from the, the university professor, a guy called Mike Eels, who was brilliant. We did workplace counselling courses, and I did a certificate in education. So there's all kinds of things I was really being exposed to that were completely new to me. And, and I love the whole aspect of of interpersonal work with people and you know helping them to to move through a course that was very challenging but i was i felt very limited by the counseling aspects of things it didn't seem to get very well very quickly so we're looking for something else and um i ended up studying uh, i did a diploma in psychotherapy it had a module on hypnotherapy which i just felt like the minute i was introduced to it it felt like i'd, I'd always known it in a, in a kind of a way it was like coming home and then i tripped over nlp and um, again, just completely blew my mind. I learned more in seven days of NLP training about how to help people to learn than I had done in, in a two-year certificate in education course. All of that, just it just fascinated me, how I could help somebody with a fear of exams in the space of half an hour, let go of that fear and increase their exam results, sometimes 25% the very next day. And when you begin to, you begin to watch people changing in that way, I think it can be quite addictive. And I just knew I was never going to go back to being a police officer. So I spent three years building up a nighttime or an evening practice outside of work. And then um, and then I jumped. I left the police, set up a practice. And then two years after that, uh, my wife, uh, Rebecca, she left the police as well. And we set up the Quest Institute to train people in the approach that I developed. 
and it kind of went from there that was about 15 16 years ago uh, and now i have a practice in harley street uh, most uh, i do three things really i have a, a practice in harley street i train people through the quest institute to become cultivated therapists mm -hmm. and I write books so you know three things i love and i just try to balance them out fantastic and, and i mean you talk about this sort of approach that you developed cognitive hypnotherapy how, how would you describe it to someone who hadn't come across it before it's not a nutshell description, I have to say. It was kind of, it emerged out of this um, as an antidote in many respects. The th two things that I saw, I was reading a lot, um, still read a lot, did lots of training. And what I came across were two main things. One was the presence of a lot of certainty within therapy, that people seemed to be very sure that their models were the right models and other people's were lesser. So there was this whole bun fight constantly going on about whose techniques were better than others. And I thought that was getting in the way of, of approaches. The minute somebody came up with something new, they built a wall around it, copyrighted it, and made you pay thousands to learn it. And the thing I loved about NLP was this whole idea of just stealing from anything that worked and refining it down to get the essence of it and then teaching it to other people. And yet even NLP succumbed to that. So there were various forms of NLP. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to trap that kind of idea of, of continual uncertainty so we could have a, a rolling revolution, if you like where we continually adjust a model of therapy to take in everything that we learn along the way. And because I think the second thing was that out of this certainty emerges um, a kind of a search for a label in every client that, you, that comes to see you, where you do a diagnosis, you attach a label, which leads to a treatment plan. So if you're a hypnotherapist, somebody says, I'm a smoker, and then out comes a smoking script. Mm -hmm. If CBT therapist, you have anxiety, then you do this, 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 and then this. So th this whole idea of there being client-centered therapy was kind of, it was a misnomer because it wasn't. The client had to enter the therapist's model in order to be helped. And there was a one-size-fits-all approach. And it just was anathema to me, really. So what cognitive therapy really is, is a way of thinking. It has a flexible framework. So you listen to the client. And we have various models of helping us understand the way that one client thinks differently to another client. We use things from NLP, so a visual client might respond better to a to certain technique than a kinesthetic client. Mm -hmm. We talk about trance phenomena, and so some, some clients respond better to uh, positive hallucination and negative hallucination, again, probably a visual client, compared to sensory distortion. And so we refine our techniques and what we're going to do to a client according to what, who the client is. So really, it's just a framework that that guides you towards whatever intervention would help from whatever other model of therapy there is. So it's not a pre an approach itself, it's a way of thinking about a client that guides you to any technique that you've got in a systematic way. So that if a client, you begin with one technique and it doesn't work, then you understand why it doesn't work and it means that you can jump to another technique, potentially from a completely different approach, even a contradictory approach. Mm -hmm. So there's a flow to it. It's a much more creative act. Uh, and certainly, I, I know from experience when I've read, you know, uh, the, the books that you've written on cognitive hypnotherapy, that it feels very much like a generative field, that you, it's growing and you're not afraid to pull in different bits flexibly, rather than going, this is the model, let's lock it down, let's throw mm -hmm. away the key, that's it, you know, nothing else must get in. And, and that's one of the things that I, I really like. Uh, and certainly when I've been interviewing people, certainly on these podcasts, one of the themes is that people seem to have almost an irreverence over their own thoughts and beliefs enough that when something else comes along they're willing to incorporate it and at least experiment and try it out 
how else do you stay excited yeah to be doing something i've been doing this for 20 years and i still look forward every single time to my client sessions because there's something new every client is a puzzle box what's their problem about how am i going to use what they give me and so it's a, it is a continual creative act and i think it keeps you young in your thoughts mm -hmm. and it keeps you um it keeps you focused on on how can we get better at this because we're not good enough yet by a long long way so why can how can we be cocky i always say to my client my students we can't be anything other than humble because in 100 years time people are going to look back at what we consider to be cutting edge and they're going to laugh at us just mm -hmm. like we at freud unless you're a psychoanalyst mm -hmm. we've got to be aware that that we are just as good as we are at the moment and tomorrow we could be much better but we're not going to be if we take ourselves too seriously absolutely and I, I think that's a really nice uh thing for people to embrace as an attitude and a, and a way forwards um going back to this idea of labels because mm. um, I mean I know in, in the client work that I do that I, I get people and they come in and they sit down and they've been to a, uh, some, seen someone else or had a, a clinical assessment and they come in and they they tell me they go you know I have depression mm. or they say you know I uh, I have generalized anxiety how useful do you think labels are just because they give me a label doesn't mean I have to have a preconceived idea about it but mm -hmm. they might. so what's going to be useful is knowing what they what they feel about the label some people like labels some people are happier because they've got a label and part of the therapy is going to help is going to be about helping them to let go of being somebody without it so it's there are there are useful shortcuts in some respects but then they're only the lightest um, and most imprecise signpost i think mm -hmm. because nearly always whatever somebody comes through the door with whatever label they've given it's not ultimately going to be about that it's going to be about their relationship to themselves even something as banal as as nail biting mm -hmm. can all the way down the rabbit hole to I don't love myself. Sometimes it'll just be about the nail biting. Yep. But it's there are ways of distinguishing between the two. But if you just have nail biting as a heading, then you're trying to squash every possible person who has that one behavior into a therapeutic um, strategy. It's yep. never going to work as effectively as meeting the individual and responding to them. I, I, I quite agree. So in your experience, what are the what are the challenges with helping people um, uh, rapidly? Um, and obviously, you know, I, uh, one of my themes is to begin to get people to see that change can happen quicker than many people would believe it, it to be possible. I think there, there are challenges that work both ways. What, from the client's point of view, um, I think there is a certain need to honour their belief system about change. So while you can be really wildly enthusiastic about the possibility of changing them in a single session, if somebody's been dragging around a problem for the last 20 years, sometimes it can feel a bit dishonoring to them to suggest that it's so easy to get rid of because then that turns into another problem of how stupid do they feel about that having happened. Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of balance that out. So when I'm listening to, to their belief systems around change, I'm looking to accommodate it, not necessarily live up to it. You know, if somebody says, oh, you know, this is, I'm deep and complex, it's gonna take 15 years for us to do this. I'm not going to strap in for 15 years. I'm going to just begin to nudge them towards a slightly shorter um, time frame. Perhaps. 14 years. Yeah, maybe 14. 14, yeah. That would still be suddenly quick, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, and I think we've been indoctrinated into this idea largely because of Freud that, you know, it takes 15 years of digging with a spoon before we finally get to the deep stuff. I don't, know, I don't believe the problems are deep. I think they're all surface because the brain needs to find them quickly. The things that we bury deeply are the things that are relevant to us. Mm -hmm. If we don't have the time, our brains don't have the time to keep us alive, to go searching through a filing cabinet, the most relevant things to our survival 
are readily accessible in my experience. So often we just have to divert the clients away from the belief that it isn't for the thing to be able to pop up. Yep. So there are a number of, of social factors that go against rapid change. Um, and also a thing that I learned out of my keenness was that sometimes you can scare a client by helping them to change too quickly. And I use this, this metaphor about, um, about how when I used to watch my wife cut bread, she would always cut every slice beautifully. And mine would be a complete mess that they would be just crumbs everywhere. And I couldn't figure out, apart from being left-handed, so knives don't quite work as well, I couldn't figure out what I was, I was doing wrong. Mm. And finally, the, it clicked that because I'm a bloke, you know, strength was the factor. So the bread will cut at my speed. And with Rebecca, it was completely different. She cuts at the speed of the bread. So she recognizes the resistance and she slows it down. And I've realized clients are the same. You have to cut at the speed of the bread. The client can only change at the speed they're prepared and able to be able to do that. So I'm always about rapid change. I'm a brief therapist. Um, and sometimes rapid change can be one session and sometimes it might be a year and a half for some for some issues. But I'm always present in the session thinking, can it be today? Mm -hmm. Can it be today? Never, never kind of slide off into, oh, this is going to be a long haul because I might miss something. One of the things that I've often thought about when I've been working with people is I, I almost feel that there's um, not that I necessarily like this phrase, but a battle of trances. Mm. You know, if they're more congruent about their problem than I am congruent about the solution, yes. you know, yeah, I point. kind of get sucked into this kind of feeling of, you see, for me, I know any session I do hypnosis is happening. I just need to make sure it's the right, the right way around. <laughs> Absolutely. You've got to trance will always occur. And, and you have got to be the person who's in control of it. Yeah. As you say, it goes, you just get sucked into their whirlpool and you end up doing laps with them. Mm. You know, the idea is you're meant to be on the bank, helping them to find the way out of it. You're not going to you're not going to get anywhere by jumping in and just holding them up. And I think that's what some approaches do. And it's I, a challenge. It, it is a challenge. And one of the things that strikes me is that we often talk about, certainly within therapy, uh, or of entering their model of the world. Mm. How do we totally join their model of the world without getting sucked into the, the same river as them? And, you know, our, our brain chemistry is against us. You know, with um, I'm, I'm really interested in the role of mirror neurons mm -hmm. in therapy and, and the suggestion that when somebody tells you their, their story in therapy, your brain is running a simulation of it, which is where our solutions emerge. And, of course, that's I think that is the critical therapeutic error that therapists make that they listen to somebody talking about, oh, yeah, this happened to me and it's terrible. Your brain runs runs through their, their system, mm -hmm. uh, that situation, and says, oh, well, the way out of it is this. And so the therapist's solution becomes an insight. It's not an insight, it's an outside. I think what we need to do is to inoculate ourselves against giving advice and think about what's the question I can ask that would help the client move in the direction that would gain them their own insight. It's a bit like inception. Yeah. You know, you drop an idea into the client's mind, but it's for them to feel that it's theirs. That's that's the skill of it, not to sit there pontificating. So how do you do that? Um, and how, how do you uh, enable yourself not to get too sucked in in terms of the content and be able to ask the questions that will let them find their own solution? That's, that's a great question. And my best answer, I think, is the model of cognitive hypnotherapy is that we are always listening for categories of information. I was very influenced by a quote that James um, used many years ago, which is there's no content in content worth knowing. Mm. 
-hmm. And you have to think about that for a while. I probably have to think about it for a couple of years before I actually stopped chanting it and understood it. But it's true. There's nothing about their story that is inherently important. It's what is the context within which it operates? What is the structure of their thoughts that creates it? What's the process that it leads them through? And what's the consequence to them of it? And so I'm training my my students to be thinking in that way so they don't get sucked into the story. They're basically thinking two things. What's that about? And by that, I mean, where's the context here? What's the structural information I can use? What's the process I can interrupt? What's the consequence I can manipulate? And how do I use it? What techniques would be best served? So I think in, in the background of my mind, I'm tremendously busy sorting out all of that stuff and of course, I've been going long enough now that it's I've, I've reached that kind of unconscious competence level where it just pings mm -hmm. and I and I know what I'm going to do next. And what I have to take my students through is the conscious competence from unconscious incompetence so that they actually they know why they're doing what they're doing. I'm mm -hmm. tremendously suspicious of of new graduates who are who say that they are just going by their gut or they're just being intuitive because they haven't trained their intuition enough to be worthwhile yet they need to be able to go to a supervisor and say i came to this decision because of this line of questions which led to these answers and this in this is the information i gave mm -hmm. somebody with three months experience or probably even a year's experience just goes oh well you know i just kind of eclectically got it i'm suspicious i wonder if they have just lacked the discipline to learn the stuff properly yeah when i was an instructor at hendon i've been on the streets for 10 or 11 years and so i the problem i faced was i would go into a class and I would set up a role play, say, of criminal damage. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, right, so that's an example of criminal damage. And then the students would say, why is it? And I couldn't tell them because I knew it was, but I'd forgotten all of the points to prove within the law that proved that offense. I had to, I had to reverse engineer my learning to go mm -hmm. from unconscious competence back to conscious competence. And I think that's a good tool for therapists to remember to do. When they sit back and go, wow, that went really well. Okay, what process did you follow that came to that good conclusion? Yep. Because by continuing to be aware of why you're doing what you're doing, I think you become more precise and you get to understand principles more. And I think that's what it's all about. Uh, what I'm always encouraging people to do is go to any training, any method, any technique that's being taught out there and deconstruct it. Look for what are the principles that are making this work so that when it doesn't work with another client, which it won't because no technique works on everybody, you understand why it doesn't work and you'll know how to change it to just manipulate it in some way to make it work for that particular person. Because uh, there is nothing, nothing that works with everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's one of our major mantras. Now, there's no hierarchy of power. Some people might think that a swish pattern is quite a weak technique compared to timeline, using timeline in regression, for example. And that depends on the client. One client might have the whole world changed by a simple switch pattern and have nothing from a timeline. Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it happen. Yeah. Absolutely. So we mustn't think about these draws of super, super techniques and minor techniques. It's how you mix them with which client. So I, I think that kind of nudges me towards exploring something else with you, which is I think people who engage in the process of brief solution therapy or looking for helping people uh, – and, and finding the way the structure, the context, the consequence, the process works. I think in many ways, for people starting out, can be more intimidating a way of working than just doing talking, counselling type stuff. Because essentially, you can't fail. If you're just chatting and it's just a conversation, mm. 
you know, the therapist doesn't have to sit there and go, oh, something didn't work. They didn't respond. It's just, just absolutely. Mm. And I think there is, for many people, uh, there may be some fear around, well, what would happen if I did something and it didn't work? How do I deal with that? Do I lose credibility as a therapist? Well, I mean, what then? If you're worried about whether you're going to lose credibility as a therapist, you should be getting therapy. It's unfair for people to be paying you for you to be guided by your limitations, I think. Yep. Um, and also with with solution-focused therapy, again, it's one of those, those mistakes our brains make where to go for just working on a solution um, and avoid any focus on the problem, why, why do we have to make this choice? We, keep, we continue to make the error that it's an either-or universe. And again, with cognitive therapy, I wanted to get rid of that because it depends on the client. Some people, I think, can be very strongly past-based. They are constantly referring to their past as a reason for their present. To ignore that past doesn't honor their way of seeing the world and is also is missing a fantastic reservoir of potential change material. Some people are, I'll only see it when I believe it. They're present-focused people. So you can do them the best work in the world in the therapy room, but until they see the change, as they walk home or a subsequent moment in their in their future present, if you like, they're not going to believe it. And then some people are solution focused, they're future focused. And so they're constantly they, the downside of it is they can be living a kind of Billy Lyre ex experience where they don't actually live. They just continue to dream about what might be. So you need to do put your emphasis on work there because you could do any number of great things that that's changes their present or changes their past. But if that doesn't update the way they see their future, nothing is going to shift. Mm -hmm. So again, that's one of the differences that we're going to be listening for as to what's the technique choices or bundle that I'm going to formulate with this one client. So I'm a great fan of solution-focused thinking and, and I, we've incorporated into cognitive therapy, but we look at problem state and solution state and then just adjust the balance according to where the weight of change or evidence for change is going to be with that particular person. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, what, what strikes me is that I mean, you're just so flexible in your approach. Well, uh, if you let go of the idea you can fail, it, it allows you to be flexible because if something doesn't work, that's just information. Mm -hmm. you know, that whole NLP thing of there is no failure, only feedback. If you can tattoo that to the inside of your eyelids and actually live it, the world changes for you. It really does because failure is usually only a fear of other people's opinion. So get some therapy. Reduce that as best you can because if in therapy something doesn't work, you just go back to the same questions again. What's that about? Why didn't it work? How can I use why it didn't work to make something else work better? Hmm. And you just keep on rehashing that until you find the thing that works because you will. Everything, will, something will work on everybody. You've just got to find the thing for that one person. So how do you go about, you know, someone rings you, for example, or uh, with a particular issue. How do you manage their expectations of what will happen during a session and, and you know, I mean, presumably, they, will they ask about time frames of, you know, how long will it take and how's this going to unfold? And That used to be the case. I have to say I'm in a very lucky situation now where where people ring up for an appointment and my wife handles all the bookings and I don't see them until they arrive. And I, and I quite like that. So that I, I'm a completely blank head. I yep. do no preparation at all for any client coming through the door. I usually don't even ask my wife what, what they say they're coming for. Yep. And, and I've, I have my first session is an hour and a half, so I've got plenty of time to settle them, to sort them, and, and often to get to an intervention phase as well. Um, and so 
I think, uh, I don't really know how to answer that. How do I manage their expectations? Um, I guess what I look, what I'm looking for is for them to realize that this is, this is not a magic pill. And just the fact that, that they're paying a lot of money for me does not mean that I'm going to wave a magic wand and they're going to walk out. This is going to be a collaboration. And I think people, people often arrive, I talk about ILOC and ELOC, where to be ELOC is to have an external locus of control. So the world is happening to you and the kind of day you have depends on how people respond to you and what happens in your day. And then there is the ILOC position of, irrespective of what happens in your day, you are free to choose the meaning of it and how you respond to it. And most clients, and I really mean all clients, come to see you in an ELOC position. They are looking for you to fix them, pretty much. And so that is an opportunity, that's a thing to be used. And so I will use that without believing in it. I am not their solution. But if it gets the ball rolling, then fine. But I, as soon as I possibly can, I'm gonna recruit them to the cause. So I give them tasks in between sessions. I get them to realize that most therapy happens in between our sessions. And so this is a joint effort. I encourage them to email me in between with what they're noticing, all the positive changes from listening to my download that they'll be plugged into every night, anything and everything, because we need them to attribute what we are doing to the differences that they begin to experience in their life. So after a while, they've gone from ELOC to a mixture. And then the last step is to get them to realize they don't need me at all. I want to build in my redundancy. They are ILOC. And so part of ILOC might be choosing to come and see me every now and again when they need a certain, a certain thing from me. And then they let me go again. This is not going to be me holding their hand all the way to their outcome. I expect to lose a client somewhere between 60 to 70% towards what they want, what they came to see me for with them believing that they've got what it takes now to get the rest of the way on their own. Mm -hmm. That is success. And sometimes I'm still holding their hand up to the hundred percent. Sometimes I'm not, but that's always what I'm after because I'm really interested in rapid change, but only if it's permanent. Otherwise it's just, you know, just a magic, magic trick and it's made my ego feel good and it's left them in no better, no better situation. Probably worse actually, because they'll have lost a bit of hope that they can be helped. Yep. It's got to be about permanence. Uh, and permanent, uh, it can only be permanent if they're responsible for its continuation. Can you give me a couple of, of real examples where you know rapid change has happened and it's lasted? Yeah, sure. Um, had a client. This is a reasonably um, this is a reasonably banal example in one respect, but it's quite lovely in another. Where. Um, a student on the course had a fear of heights so strong that she couldn't even stand on a chair. Mm -hmm. So did an intervention with her um, as a demonstration. And the following week, she abseiled down the side of a building. Um, Amazing. That's, that's great. But the even greater thing is at the end of this month, her and 15 other people from Quest who are on our master practitioner course, we're jumping out of a plane at 15,000 feet together. And that's been in the space of about three to five months since that original intervention so that's pretty cool i think and uh, absolutely amazing yeah absolutely amazing and i love i love hearing things like that yeah me too it's gonna be wonderful to see her um and we're gonna vox pop it you know we'll film we'll film a before and after and all that kind of stuff and yeah yeah it's a wonderful thing um another example i've worked a lot with um post-traumatic stress disorder yeah i think possibly because of my background in the police um a lot of police officers, a lot of service people, they, they like to come to somebody with with a, a feeling that they would understand the background of, of their experiences. So I kind of I've been involved in that for a long, long time. Um, 
a client who had been out, she was a very keen cyclist, and she was out cycling with her best friend, and her best friend was hit by a van and killed, and actually died, died in the arms of my client. And this client had already had a previous background of PTSD, as bad luck would have it. So completely, it affected her in, as you would expect, in many profound ways, including the fact that cycling changed in its entirety. Anytime she got on a bike, she went into into flashbacks, into a state of anxiety and exactly what you would expect it to be in many respects. Sure. Um, did a single intervention with her. And two weeks later, she went on an 80 mile sponsored bike ride. And the only negative feeling she had was sadness, which I think is appropriate. Yeah. But she didn't have the anxiety, the flashbacks, um, any of the other stuff that she originally saw me for. So that kind of thing, you know, I expect to happen when I work with clients. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, as I've said, I've worked with some people with PTSD. That's taken me a year to 18 months to actually get to where we wanted to get. And I've completely failed with others. So there's this whole continuum. We still haven't got the answer to everybody. Yep. And I think that's very reassuring as well for people to hear. You know, that, that there isn't anyone out there that's getting 100% success rates and... You know, I don't believe anybody who says they are. I, I, I really don't. And the great thing is, if you read enough Ericsson, hmm. you know, he admits to failures too. And if that guy's allowed to fail, then surely we all are. Absolutely. Although he always frames it in an interesting way. And I think there's a funny quote, and I think I said it last time we spoke, uh, where he says, you know, I've been able to, to help everyone that I've worked with, and there's a few I'm still working on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And there is that, that. You know, I can think that I've completely bounced off of some people. And yet, maybe the time isn't just right for them now. Yeah. But also, I might just not be the right fit for them. Somebody else is. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a lovely thing that I think it's perfectly possible that I've got 20 years of experience and somebody can come to see me. And despite all of that, the fit isn't right. And I send them to one of my students with two years experience and they, they crack them in one. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And what I would do is sit down with, the, with my student and say, so how did you do that? Because yep. that's a lovely place to learn from. You learn as much. I learn. One of the great things about being a teacher as well as a therapist is I think the therapy helps my teaching, but the teaching helps my therapy. Because I hear I hear in people's ignorance, you know, from on module one of my course, they know nothing about this stuff. And so they're not restricted by limitations. And so they can ask a question that makes me that makes me question my own concreteness after years of experience. And that's wonderful. Because they are, they're as often right as I am. Yeah. We can learn from everybody. And going back a, a second, because you said you expect them to be able to change. You expect this to happen. How far do you think a therapist's expectations about what's possible, um, you know, guides the, the, the interaction? Oh, massively. If you do not believe that you can help somebody to change, you shouldn't be seeing them. Mm -hmm. And I think one of, the, one of the, the key things, and something I've observed in 15 years of watching graduates, is that the more the graduate involves themselves in personal change for themselves, the more likely they are to be successful as a therapist. Some yeah. people just come along and they do it as an academic exercise because they want to help other people. And they're relatively unchanged by the end of the course. Those people don't tend to last. But the people who actually say, these are the things about me that I need to work on and continue to work at them. You know, I still have therapy for mm -hmm. bits that come along and bite me on the bum. And they're not the big things that used to, but, you know, why let anything hold you back? So, you know, I'm I'm jumping out of a plane 
I've had a fear of heights in the in the past. I'm still not completely clear of it. I'm doing stuff to make sure I jump out of that plane. I'm not taking it for granted. And it gives you a massive reservoir of belief in the possibility of change, because I know what it's felt like to have a panic attack standing on something that's eight feet off the ground. And I know what it's like to stand in the same place and wonder what the hell that was about then. So if you can sit there with that belief system, then it's just a question of what haven't I discovered yet for you that's going to make the change in you. But everyone, no one stays the same. Mm. If, if, if they don't come to therapy, they're not staying the same. They're likely to be getting worse. We, with the butterfly effect, we are not who we're going to be yet. And it's a question of, are we making ourselves up in a form that makes us happy? Or are we making ourselves up in a form that leads to continuing and increasing unhappiness? That's what I'm, that's what I'm about, really, nudging people towards the better choice. Uh, and I think it's a really nice way of looking at it, nudging people towards the better choice. I, I, I think it's it's very elegant. Um, I, look, I, whose work would you say a, a methodology has the biggest impact on on you and the way in which you work? Oh, oh, lovely. Um, right. Obviously, you've got to say I've got to say Ericsson. Mm-hmm. Obviously, just for his insight that people aren't fixed, you, and sorry, the people aren't broken, and you're not the fixer, and people have all the resources they need to get better you find it you find everything the solution is within them i love that obviously i love his language um bander and grinder for the genius of modeling and everything that really came from that change of ideas that nlp has led to i love that very grateful for them as well stephen Wilinski completely changed the way that i saw trance that actually trance is present in everyday life it's not a special state and that actually when clients come to see you when they tell you a problem they're telling you their trance and actually, our job is to dehypnotize people from their problem trance. Mm-hmm. That's that I never, I'm, my life changed just from that one book, Trances People Live. It was brilliant. Um, funnily enough, also, Gil Boyne was one of the biggest influences, even though he was a, um, he was a great, he, he ended up as a great friend of mine and hoped that one day I would grow out of NLP. <laughs> he was a real direct authoritarian hypnotherapist who would put his, hand behind the neck of somebody and shout sleep and pull them onto their shoulder and get a stage hypnosis background. And he believed people had to be told everything about how to get better. But I went along on his masterclass and I thought, well, if NLP is right, I should be able to model everything that's contrary to that belief system in his work. And I could. And I also had to accept that his direct authoritarian work was doing fantastic things in a short space of time. And that really was a moment when the penny dropped that up until then it was Ericsson good, anyone not Ericsson bad. (laughs) And I realized actually Gil Boyne and Ericsson are opposite ends of the continuum, both doing great work. So what's the, what's the synthesizing feature here? And for me, it's the client, which system, which combination works best with whom? So there, I could go on, I could go on and on about who's influenced me, but they're probably, they're probably the big ones. It, it's well i mean one of the things that I'm, I'm i'm hoping that people will do is when they hear people like yourself talk about the influences is that they'll go and they'll they'll start reading more from these people and looking into more of these people uh, and having their own set of self-discovery oh i know. do hope so. read monsters and magical sticks by stephen heller it's, it's i don't know if he ever knew any nlp people but it seemed he was around the same point in time and seemed to be on a parallel line and yep. just beautiful in the way that he is so flexible and so light in his approach um, I, I could give, I'm a book addict really, so I could bore your senses with book titles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'd also also like to 
to say that um, Tad Jones and David Shepard as my principal early NLP influences. You know, they were the guys who actually taught me NLP and they were massively influential in their skill, um, in their precision of NLP. There was nothing wishy-washy about whether you knew something or whether you didn't. And I think it gave me a fantastic grounding. I know when we last spoke, you were talking about um, some of the other work that you've been doing. Um, uh, is it with Slim Pods? Oh yes, yes. And some of the, and then uh, what that means for people with diabetes. And I just wonder whether you'd be prepared to, to share some of those thoughts uh, because I think it makes for some interesting discussion um, around perhaps why organisations are often and individuals are so resistant to change. Well, yes, thank you. The um, I work with a company called Thinking Slimmer, um, who do predominantly weight loss products and those products are my word weaving downloads mm -hmm. so people listen to them at night um they only last for 10 minutes and then actually we've we've recently taken them through a six-month double-blind randomized study um which has shown and i think this might even be the first time ever it's been shown that they were successful hypnotic suggestion actually works which is quite a nice place to get to in a way and the loveliest thing about it was it wasn't just the fact that they helped them lose weight. They actually just liked themselves better at the end of six months of listening to them, which is, I think, much more important. Mm -hmm. So um, so I've got a lot of people out there listening to things for weight loss, which is wonderful. And there's a great community of things. But an interesting byproduct of it was that a number of people with um, um, type 2 diabetes reported that from the changes they were making as a result of listening to SlimPods, that they were... Um, able to come off of insulin and actually be able to control their problem through diet, which is pretty sensational. And so Sandra Rickoff Davis, the, um, the head of Thinking Slimmer, and myself went along to Diabetes UK to talk about the possibility of rolling out a study where we would supply the SlimPods. In fact, I was going to do a specific, I have done a specific diabetes download to see if people can regulate. And again, we've got to be very responsible about this. I am not saying we've got the cure for diabetes. What I'm suggesting is that there are people out there who have the possibility that they could control their own. They could be their solution to diabetes. Probably not everybody, certainly not everybody, but certainly some. Um, and the very first thing they said was there's no cure for diabetes. And they wouldn't even they would not sway from that initial set point. Mm -hmm. And I've, we come across that a lot. But if you think about it, what is the future for Diabetes UK if there's a cure for diabetes? They disappear. And I think it's the nature of organizations that after a while, they begin to exist for their own existence rather than for the thing they were set up for. I even saw that, I saw that within the police service, and I see it now within the police service, that after a while it's about protecting the police service, not about serving the public. And not from a, an individual level, just as an emergent property of that organization. Mm -hmm. they, and they lose trust in their own opinions. They get led by politicians. And, you know, we're not getting served. And so Politics writ large is it's exactly like, the same it, thing. It's like secondary gain for the organisation. Absolutely. And government is another example of it, isn't it? Yep. Government serves itself now. It doesn't serve the people. It's, um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's such a shame that, you know, there are things that are out there that there's strong evidence for, that there are case studies for, that, um, that we can provide proof for, uh, that people aren't willing to explore. Yes. Well, can I just say that we've, we've just done a two-year study in cognitive therapy on its, on its efficacy, because, you know, what's the point of, of saying this is great and still falling through? You know, CBT is, has its prominence because they put their therapy through the ringer. Mm -hmm. And 
from the result of studies, they could say it's 52% effective in these areas. And as a result, NICE accepted them and they got 700 million pounds of public funding. Hypnotherapy is nowhere close to that situation because there is no evidence that supports its usefulness. And in this evidence-based world, you know, we continue to be a complementary approach. And we wanted to change that. So we began a study, um, it's going on three years ago now, we first began it, using instruments that the, NC, the um, NHS use. Um, pencil studies or, or pencil measures that clients use to assess whether the therapy has worked. Mm-hmm. There's um, a wellness um, measure and there is one for anxiety and one for depression. So we're using the very things that doctors are using in their surgeries. And we are about to get published in the Mental Health Review Journal that shows that in our pilot study, with an average of six sessions, cognitive hypnotherapists were able to work with, with anxiety and depression and were effective with a percentage I think was 73% on an average of six sessions against the CBTs of about 52%. Now, ours is only a pilot study, and again, we want to be responsible. We're not going to come straight out and go, look, we're better than CBT. But I wanted to open up a debate with NICE to say, look, there is there is something here that is worth you considering now. Mm-hmm. This is, there's nothing inherently wrong with hypnotherapy that prevents it being taken seriously. It's just that everybody is defending their hypnotherapy. And of yep. course, I'm going to say, well, of course, so am I, because now we've called it cognitive hypnotherapy and we're putting a fence around it. And we're inviting everybody in, but it needs to be something that has a framework because if, it, if cognitive hypnotherapy is represented by everybody, then it means nothing. If everyone's doing their version of cognitive hypnotherapy, then it's nothing. Yep. So we do have to have certain bounds around what is it that you're doing? which has been a bit of a challenge, I have to say, because people love to say, oh, well, I do that, but I add this. But if they're adding this, they haven't understood cognitive therapy yet because it's not a thing. It's yep. a way of thinking about everything. You would, you would get that. Well, I, I know personally, I, you know, I, I hope that, um, you know, the research studies begin to nudge people in the right direction and nudge those who need nudging Absolutely. You know, in the right direction. Because primarily, aren't we all in the business of making sure that the best help is available for people who need it? Yeah, absolutely right. Um, is there anything else that we haven't covered or that you think would be useful for, for people at home, uh, listeners, to be able to, to hear? I think it's, if I was to leave with anything, it's just this idea of therapy being a permanent revolution and to do anything you can do to avoid certainty. The minute you think, uh, there's a lovely quote, I think it's Bill Hudson O'Hanlon, who says, um, whenever, I, whenever a diagnosis of a client comes to mind, I go away and lie down until it goes away again. And I, that's what I'd, I'd encourage people to do. Um, you know, one of my my favourite th- um, sayings is by Paul Sappho mm. about strong beliefs, but hold them weakly. Yeah. Let them go the minute the belief no longer serves you. Otherwise, you become concrete. And if you look at the history of therapy, it's there are more dogmas and churches out there than there are actually living, breathing, moving therapies. And so I made an appeal in my book on cognitive therapy for it to remain a constant revolution that... I want, if somebody comes to see me and says, this thing works and I can show that it works and it doesn't fit in our model, mm-hmm. then we change our model. We don't ignore that particular thing. It's got to be, it's, as Bruce Lee would say, we've got to be water. We've got to flow. We mustn't get stuck. 
absolutely great and and also uh, as i said all the the, the the recommendations and the books that you mentioned uh, i will uh, we will put them up uh, on the the site as well and even if trevor doesn't say it himself i absolutely thoroughly recommend all three of trevor's uh, cognitive hypnotherapy book i think everyone should go out and, and, and buy them and read them and devour them and uh, really uh, absolutely so, amazing and word weaving is about it's just going through its fifth reprint and we're just about to put it on kindle in celebration so um it's fantastic and the second one chris is the answer that'll be kindled by january as well absolutely great so it'll be easy for people to get hold of it um so if people are listening to the podcast uh, and are keen to hear more from you uh, where should they go how should they get in touch um my website is probably um probably best if you're interested in training and and the general background of cogkip then probably the questinstitute.co.uk um i do have a therapy page trevisylvester.com as well um, they're probably the two best places. There's also a cognitive therapy website as well that you can go to also, um, which um, keeps you in touch with what's the latest stuff that's going on. And a question to your Facebook page and Twitter as well. Cool. About social media nonsense. Fantastic. Well, we'll put all the links uh, again under the information so people can uh, get hold of you easily uh, as well. And thank you again um, you know, on behalf of, of myself and on behalf of all the people tuning in. Um, we really, really appreciate your time today and going through all that. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. No, it's fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested? And even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works.